Every four years, it's my turn to serve as chaplain up at high school camp, and my theme each time has been gladness in God. He has made me glad. And one session in that series really grips the attention of everybody who reads it in the handout I give the campers at the beginning of the week. The sentence, the title of the session, is... God commands us to be happy and threatens terrible things if we will not. (laughs) I didn't come up with that sentence on my own. It originated with Jeremy Taylor, a 16th century pastor and theologian. God commands us to be happy and threatens terrible things if we will not. Taylor was actually commenting on today's sermon text when he said that. And I think he's accurate, but before taking a closer look at a couple of verses in Deuteronomy 28, I probably ought to unpack a few key terms in that striking sentence so that we understand what Taylor is saying, what the text is saying, and what Taylor was not saying, and what the text is not saying. Words that might get in the way of our believing that sentence. I don't think I can make it any less striking, but maybe a little more believable, if I tell you what I mean and what I think Jeremy Taylor meant by commands, happy, and threatens. And I'll start with the word happy. God commands us to be happy. (laughs) Some of us might struggle less with that if... Taylor had said God commands us to be joyful because joyful is a churchy word. It sounds more religious. And we might balk at the notion that God wants everybody to be happy, much less that God commands people to be happy. We might think of happy as describing a relatively superficial emotional state. You're happy when there's money in the bank. You're happy when your children are behaving well and performing well in school. You're happy when the doctor says, you're all clear of cancer. I don't need to see you for another couple years. In other words, we're happy depending on our circumstances, whereas we might apply the word joyful to something deeper, more settled, more permanent, that's rooted in God, not circumstances. In fact, you'll read or hear Bible teachers make that distinction very clearly and maybe have a chart with happiness described over here and joy described over here. And certainly, there is a deeper, more substantial, more lasting, rooted-in-God emotional experience uh, that does not depend on our circumstances. And if you want to call that joy and the fluffier, more passing or superficial experience, happiness, that's fine. Just don't expect that the Bible will make that distinction consistently. Because the Bible uses a variety of terms interchangeably without making the distinction that we sometimes make. The Bible talks about delight in God. The Bible says that at God's right hand are pleasures 
forevermore. And in his parable, Jesus says to the faithful servant, well done. Come now and share your master's happiness. Perhaps Jeremy Taylor used the word happy instead of joyful because of its shock value, or at least attention-getting value, if he had just used the more religious-sounding term uh, joy, uh, then, then people might not have paid as much attention. Certainly, C.S. Lewis knew the value of a striking, well-turned sentence. He said once, it is everyone's duty, as you know, to be as happy as he can. Now, I will be using happy in this message interchangeably with joyful, and I will not be talking about the Pollyanna zippity-doo-dah experience. I will be talking about something like Habakkuk meant when he said at the end of his prayer, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk was determined to be happy in God regardless of his circumstances. What about that word commands? God commands us to be happy. You might think, as I used to think, that it makes no sense to talk about commanding emotions or feelings that they are not the kind of things that we can willfully change. I thought that it made sense for God to command us to believe certain truths, that it made sense for God to command us to do certain things, but let's not talk about commanding emotions. They are not the kind of things that we can will. And there is a kind of logic to that. However, I have come to see that that's not biblical. That the Bible, the Word of God, in fact, commands us to feel certain things. Dozens, scores, probably hundreds of times we are commanded to feel. Oh, reverence, contrition over sin, shame. Yes, there are times we are supposed to be ashamed. Joy, gladness, the gratitude, and taking gratitude as an example, the Bible doesn't merely say, make thanksgiving sentences come out of your mouth. God wants us to authentically, feelingly, in fact, be grateful. There's a word for saying things that you don't mean from your heart. Hypocrisy. Now, there may be times when the best we can do is sing the Thanksgiving hymn in church or say the gratitude prayer even though we don't feel it. But at such times, we ought not say, but who cares, feelings don't matter. What we ought to be saying silently, probably, is, Father, I know my heart is not in these words as it should be. 
I'm doing the best I can in the moment, but I pray that you would awaken in me genuine gratitude. Help me to feel wholeheartedly the truth of the words that I am saying. Because feelings matter. Feelings are commanded. And a few moments ago, we heard just a few samples from the Psalms where joy or gladness or delight or pleasure in God is not just recommended, not just modeled, but commanded. And you find this elsewhere in the Bible. In the New Testament, we have Peter saying, Rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice. He thought that we were supposed to rejoice in all circumstances. Our Lord Jesus even said, rejoice when you're persecuted. In fact, the way Luke records the saying of Jesus, our Lord says, in such circumstances, leap for joy. I can't do that. And neither can you, in and of ourselves. We need for God to work in us a mighty work of regeneration, followed by year in, year out, 24-7, help from the Holy Spirit. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor uh, daily I'm constrained to be. Centuries ago, Augustine recognized that God can command things and does command things that we are incapable of doing. And so he prayed, God, command what you will and then give me what you command. And so when we obey these commands to rejoice in God, to be glad in God, he gets all the credit, all the glory, because it's only his spirit, his grace, that is enabling us to do what we otherwise would not do. God commands us to be happy. And then there's another word in that sentence by Jeremy Taylor that we balk at, threatens. He threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. And that brings us to Deuteronomy 28. We're looking at verse 46, or 47 of Deuteronomy 28. Verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Serve God joyfully or else. Here Moses is wrapping up his third and final sermon. His words are not done, but what follows this chapter is the song of Moses and then a blessing he pronounces on the people. This is the, nearing the end of his third sermon, the last message he will preach to the people of Israel prepared to go into the promised land. And he has been, for many chapters now, giving them a steady dose of what has come to be called Deuteronomic theology. Deuteronomy theology. The gist of which is this. 
God has made a covenant with you, his people. And if you keep that covenant, if you love and serve and trust God with all your heart, he'll bless you. You will prosper in the land he's bringing you into. It will go well with you. But if you're faithless, if you break covenant, he will chastise you. Do right, and it will go well with you. Do wrong, not so well. And here in this text, we see that it is not enough to serve God grudgingly, dutifully, teeth-grittingly. God is not interested in that kind of service from us. God is not honored by that kind of service from us. He does not want a people who just go through the motions, outward compliance to the rules. He wants our hearts. Have you seen that in Deuteronomy? It's come up again and again in these messages. And if you're reading through Deuteronomy, you see with all your heart, with all your soul, as a repeated theme, God wants us to love and obey and trust him from the heart, which is another way of saying joyfully. Serve God joyfully or else. Now, this is what Moses said to the people of Israel. Does God say this to the church? You know, there are people who make too great a distinction between Israel and the church. There are differences, to be sure. We do not stand in precisely the same relationship to God as Old Testament Israel did. There are things different about the new covenant. But I think it would be naive and even dangerous to presume that God would never chastise his church. Oh, but we're the bride of Christ. Yes, and Israel was the wife of God. And he chastised Israel. And it may very well be that in certain locations, in certain seasons, certain centuries, God might look at a faithless covenant-breaking church and say, okay, they need to be chastised. And the church might for a while serve other masters. Israel would be sent into exile to serve pagan overlords and see what it's like to live under gods of money, sex, and power instead of living in loving obedience, joyful obedience to the one true God. And it may be that the church in certain circumstances would serve a secular government and have to be taught some lessons. But Jeremy Taylor saw an application of Deuteronomy 28 to individuals as well. Not only the corporate people of God, but to you and to me in our individual relationship with God. Serve God joyfully or else. Ben Patterson was a pastor going through a rough season in ministry and in his family life. And one year, he just didn't even want to go back to the church after his vacation. Just felt like he couldn't face it. It was too depressing. But he gritted his teeth, pointed the car toward home, determined to do what the church was paying him to do. 
And he went through the motions of serving the Lord for a couple of weeks like this until one evening, almost as if by audible voice, God said to him, Ben, I don't need this from you. If you can't serve me joyfully, don't call it service. Change your attitude or else get a new job. You see, joyless service deeply dishonors God. And it compromises our testimony. Peter wrote to his congregation, although you have not personally seen Jesus, you love him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. These are people who were poor. They were persecuted and they were not part of that first generation that met Jesus in the flesh, yet they had come to know him and knowing him, they were happy in God. Happy in Christ. But what if a watching world sees us and sees gloom where they're supposed to see inexpressible and glorious joy? Peter also says that Jesus came and lived and died to bring us to God. But what if I've come to God and I find that my happiness is just as dependent on circumstances as everybody else's circumstances. You see, joyless relationship to God, joyless service of God, deeply dishonors him and compromises our testimony. And so Moses says, serve God joyfully or else. Or else what? Or else God might firmly but gently rebuke you as he did Ben Patterson. I don't need this from you. You're dishonoring me. Don't call it service. Or God might strip away from you and from me the idols that we are looking to for satisfaction in life instead of to him. Maybe it's our savings account, maybe it's our vacation plans, maybe it's our lovely home, whatever it is that we look to for joy and happiness, God might say, I will not tolerate any substitutes, no idols on the throne of your heart, and take them away for our own eternal good. He might do that. He might let you go to hell. Your reaction might be the same as I think some campers' reaction is every few years. What are you saying? That just because I'm not happy, God's going to send me to hell? No. What I'm saying is that if you are not happy in God, you won't be happy in heaven. Because God is the overwhelming, bright, burning reality of heaven. Heaven is heaven because God is there. And if you can't be happy in God, then heaven would be hell for you. Serve God joyfully. Or else. 
Yes, but how? How? What if I'm honest with myself and I admit that I am not happy in God? First of all, don't settle for that. Pray that God would give you an undivided heart. Pray David's prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Read one of a couple of books by John Piper, The Dangerous Duty of Delight, which is referenced in today's bulletin and available for sale here. Or a follow-up book, What If I Don't Desire God? Crucify self-pity. Practice habits of happiness, especially gratitude, because it's almost impossible to be thankful and unhappy at the same time. I would say, don't fake it. If you're not happy in God, that's a sad thing, but don't compound the problem by hypocrisy, pretending that you are. Ben Patterson, who learned his lesson about joyless service, now has a response to people who say, how's it going, when in fact it's not going all that great. He's honest. He says, other than the fact that all my sins are forgiven, that God loves me with an everlasting love, and that I'm headed for heaven, I'm not doing so well. Or sometimes he just says, fundamentally sound. 